relationships, I normally tell people there are two kinds of issues when it comes to relationships. There are knowledge issues and there are heart issues. Uh, Knowledge would be skills. It takes a certain amount of skills to make a relationship work. I think so. Communication skills, conflict resolution skills. There are knowledge issues and then there are heart issues. There's issues of caring and how well we care for one another. And, um, and so I, I, I want to confess to you, and, and you can tell Wanda, you know, in my marriage, I mean, various domains of life, we get to examine our hearts, right? A marriage is a really good domain context in which to examine my heart. And I'm called to love Wanda like Jesus. And so I want one or two of you to say to Wanda today, Steve confessed in class that he didn't love you like Jesus this week. You know, we had one of those. Am I the only one? You know what I mean? And so at least let me confess it that, hey, I didn't measure up to the standard. I'm supposed to love her. Not supposed to. I'm called to love her like Jesus, right? And hey, sometimes I lose some skirmishes, you know, but it's a time of self-reflection. I told you, I confessed to you last week that I had an occasion to be a caregiver for Wanda, and uh, she had a broken ankle, and I I did that well for 30 days, literally, you know. I, I You know, I cared for her, and uh, my heart was right, And on day 31, uh, just being honest, on day 31, I was angry. I was frustrated. And so on one hand, that sounds kind of funny and humorous, maybe about marriage, you know, uh, that I was good for 30 days. But on another hand, it certainly caused me, it caused me to ask myself, what lack I yet, right? What lack I yet? when it comes to my heart and my ability to care for another. You know, the Bible is really a book about relationships. And though it may not speak directly and use the term caregiving, it is just all over Scripture as to how we care for one another, right? Our hearts. So there are certain skills that are involved, I think, in caregiving and decision-making and, quite frankly, a good bit of what we talk about in this class will be related to some of that. How do we go about dealing with some of the problems and challenges of caregiving? But at the end of the day, it is a labor of love. It's like, hey, it says something about my heart, my ability to care for you. I I want to remind you of the scriptural inspiration for our uh, conversations. What I'm trying to say, I think, is really captured here in James 1. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. If you want to look at yourself and your spirituality, I mean, what greater, you know, he's saying that. Hey, the essence of your religion, your spirituality, would be this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And I think we could broaden that. Certainly orphans and widows, or really anyone in need or growing dependency, how do we care for them? 
And, uh, and then uh, I, I talked to you about the passage over in Matthew 25, 34 through 40. I don't know if I had re- ever looked at it quite through those lens, you know, where Jesus is saying, I was hungry and you fed me and I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. Well, as, as often as you have done it unto the least of these, well, what about the greatest of these? What about those who have loved you the most? What about those who have cared for you the most? If you're here next week, I'm going to show you what I believe to be a very powerful video that actually captures Scripture in terms of we love them, our parents, as they have loved us in days past. And I hope you'll be here uh, for that. But Jesus, uh, as I thought about this passage more, it's like, hey, your aging spouse, your aging parents, hey, they were hungry and you fed them. They were thirsty and you, you gave them to drink. They, they were alone and you visited them. They could no longer live alone and you took them in. It, and I kind of look through, and, and what's he saying? As you do it unto them, you've done it unto me. And if you're a caregiver, I hope you'll be affirmed in your ministry, your work of God in caring for uh, aging loved ones. And then the other passage we looked at, and we will continue to use these to, but if a widow... But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice. By what? Caring for their own family, and so what? Repaying their parents and grandparents. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. You know, there are times in Scripture where it says something that Sort of sounds like, hey, if you don't master this, then don't even call yourself a disciple of mine. That's pretty strong language, but he's using pretty strong language here, isn't he? If you go over to John chapter 13, you know, it's like, hey, Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. In other words, Peter, unless you understand what I'm teaching you in the moment, Don't even call yourself my disciple. Don't even call yourself a Christian. And it's pretty strong language here. Oh, by the way, I appreciate the edit a few of you gave me. I had chapter 4 there last week. It's actually 1 Timothy 5. But it's pretty strong language here when it says, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he has what? Denied the faith. Worse than an unbeliever, don't even call yourself my disciple if you're not willing to care for your own, if you're not willing to love your own in this way. So to move us forward, we, uh, we talked about successful aging and successful caregiving. Uh, we talked about some of the social challenges that make it harder today and... Uh, Yeah, I should have been here. Here we go. We talked about the emotional cost that comes with caregiving. 
and said that if we're going to deal with the emotion of caregiving, and especially like chronic caregiving, then we've got to put in place those things that maintain our physical and emotional health. You must recognize that emotional and physical health cannot exist unless what is necessary to make it exist is done first. When I read that, it reminds me of a client I had many years ago when I was in training. I had a man in his probably middle 70s, a good and godly man. I was in training in marriage and family therapy, and he was one of my clients, and he came to see me, and he was just as depressed as he could be, just as worn out as he could be, and as I listened to his story, he, uh, he liked to preach and often would preach on Sundays at a small country church. He liked to referee basketball and he loved to be at the sporting events and run up and down the court, and he was physically fit and refereeing high school basketball. And he loved his wife of many, many years, who in his case had recently had a stroke and was increasingly dependent on him. Did we not mention last week that sometimes these events coincide with other events? We have multiple stressors, not just one. We have multiple, we have cumulative stressors. At the same time, or near the same time, that his wife had a stroke and grew increasingly dependent on him, his son went through a divorce, moved back home, with the two of them, and was a closet alcoholic. And he was torn and trying to care for both of them. Guess what he did? He got where he couldn't preach on Sundays. He got where he couldn't, or at least he gave up, refereeing basketball games. You with me? It gave up those things that gave such joy to him, that kind of renewed his spirit. He gave up those things that sustained him. And in so doing, over time, he was in need of care. The caregiver was now in need of care. He was depressed. Oh, I didn't even mention, we talk about multiple cumulative stressors. About this same time, the uh, school that I was at, at the time, um, retired him, so to speak. They went through one of those downsizings, you know. So he not only lost his job, he stopped preaching, he stopped being a referee, he became a caretaker to his wife who had had a stroke, and he became a caretaker to his son who moved back home and was a closet alcoholic. You with me? And guess what? When he comes to see me, he's in need of care. He's depressed, deeply depressed. So I'm using that to illustrate you must recognize that emotional and physical health for the caregiver cannot exist unless what is necessary to make it exist is done first. And as I mentioned last week, I went to a lady who cared for aging parents for 20 consecutive 
years. This is a godly woman. She and her husband had been missionaries. So she's a very spiritual woman. She told me one time, Steve, there was a time where I went four years without attending services. Because I was with them. That's pretty remarkable, right, for such a godly, spiritual woman. Well, I went to her. She did it for 20 years. And I said, uh, you know, I'm trying to deal with the emotional aspects of caregiving. And so her response to me was along the lines, well, you've got to think right about caregiving if you're going to take care of your own emotional health. And so she gave me what I would describe to you as irrational shoulds. Caregivers live by these shoulds and must. And we all do some of that, and it's normally not very healthy when we're living by these must and these shoulds. And I'm just going to share with you what she shared with me as a person who had cared so well for 20 years. And she described it, by the way, as joy. (laughs) I told you, she would come to speak to my classes, and I would have to massage her message. She was so joyful about caregiving that I would, after she'd leave, I'd have to tell the students, I'm like, hey, it's not like that, guys. (laughs) I mean, there's another side, because she spoke in such positive terms about the joy of caring for her aging parents and such. So, let's see her words of wisdom. And if you have a good example along the way, you jump in here, okay? Uh, uh, Irrational shoulds. I, one person, should be able to meet all of the needs of caregiving. Uh, Sometimes caregivers are very inclined to go it alone. Uh, we, We want to maximize our independence. We... We, uh, want, we believe that we're capable and such, and oftentimes caregivers, they try to go it alone. And so she says, hey, one of the irrational shoulds is that I, one person, should be able to meet all of their needs of caregiving. Well, similar to that, she said, I should be able to handle the role of caregiving without outside help or respite care. Uh, Anybody relate to that? Anybody here ever observed what she's saying here where one person tries to do it? Matter of fact, before class I was visiting, you know, about, hey, here one person was caring for their aging parents at the same time the spouse was experiencing her own illness. And it's like, hey... That's a pretty heavy load for one person to carry. Any observations on that? Anybody seen that? She's saying that's an irrational should. If you embrace the idea that you're going to do it alone, you will wear yourself out, and at some point you'll need to be uh, cared for. Did I mention to you my sister-in-law already? Did I already tell you that story? Maybe. About my mother, my sister-in-law caring for my mother. Uh, she's a great example of this. My, my sister-in-law, Mary Dean, who passed away last summer, and I may have said it already, uh, passed away last summer, cared for my aging mother, she and my brother Larry. In the final years of my mother's terminal illness with emphysema, 
And my brother would say, there would be times I would hold mom's hand and all, and she would turn blue trying to catch her next breath. He said, I couldn't do anything but hold her hand. Well, as you might would guess, the majority of the caregiving, as often is the case, falls on the wife and falls on women oftentimes, not always. But in this case, yes, much of my mother's needs were met by Meridine. Meridine was one of the most godly Christian and strong personalities, people you would want to meet. And after four years of working a day job, coming home and caring for my aging mother, family, children, and such, Meridine reached a breaking point where she could do no more. Good as gold, good as she could be, but just worn out physically and emotionally. And, and they took my mom and, and my other brother took my mom in during her final six months or so of her life. But Meridine, it, much of it was on her. It's hard to do it without outside help or respite care. Thoughts? Kind of similar to that, I should not burden my children or siblings with any of the demands of caregiving. That's one of those irrational shoulds. I would also suggest to you it's unscriptural. <laughs> Did you notice that? It sounds noble, and many go-it-alone loved ones who say, I'm going to do it, I'm going to care for them, will say, I'm not going to burden my children or siblings with any demands of caregiving. Matter of fact, the scripture we looked at just a moment ago said not only your children, but who else? The grandchildren. Oh, teach them to put to practice that which they believe, right? And I think it kind of fits with this notion of, hey, yes, it, it, it says even grandchildren would care for their aging grandparents. And what? It says repay them even. It's like there's some, some healthy obligation there. They cared for you in your time of need. You children and grandchildren care for them in their time of need. Yeah, that one's not even scriptural that I wouldn't burden my family with caring. Number four, I should always be there because something may happen. Uh, it's like, okay, if I'm away from my loved one, something and something could happen. But it's an irrational should to say you've got to always be there. You cannot break away from. You cannot escape from. And number four is very close to number five. Again, I'm sharing with you what she told me. I should not take any time for myself to do things I enjoy. Caregivers kind of buy into some of these irrational shoulds. My loved one cannot enjoy life in the same way as they have in days past. I can't enjoy life either. I've got to give up the things that have been a source of enjoyment and renewal from the stress of life. I've got to give those things up, right? 
I should not take any time for myself to do things I enjoy. The gentleman, the godly man I referred to, he gave up his preaching, which he loved to do. He gave up his, his refereeing basketball, which he loved to do. You with me? He lost his job, which he loved to do. Any, yes, ma'am. Six and seven years. Yes. Uh huh. Yes. Wow. He called her grandma. Wow. And this was caring for your mother. Did you hear that? Caring for her mother, her husband, joined in so you could go to grandchildren's baseball games. You could have moments away, moments of respite, moments of renewal, right? Okay, I even went out of state when another grandbaby was born, right? That goes back to our previous class, right? I'm going to be there. (laughs) Oh, you need to continue to do things that you enjoy and be okay with that. Number six, she said, I should not allow myself to enjoy any social event my spouse, loved one, cannot enjoy with me. Well, that sounds very similar to number five, and it is, but there's an added thought there, I think, that if you're not careful as a caregiver, you will allow the responsibilities of caring for a loved one to come to to cause you to distance from your social network, your your Christian family, your community of faith, right? You you will lose some of the social relationships, uh, godly relationships that help sustain you and help provide emotional support and such for you as well. You'll distance from others. Through my care, I should be able to make my loved one better. She said that was an irrational should. As they age and become increasingly dependent, there are some things you're not going to fix, that you're not going to, to resolve to make better. You, you help them cope, and you cope, but you're, there are some things you're not going to fix it. And uh, through my care, I should be able to make my loved ones circumstances better. That's an irrational should. She goes on to say, I should be able to please my loved one all of the time. (laughs) How about this? Before you assumed the role of a caregiver, were you able to please them all the time? I doubt it. (laughs) Right? As a parent or as a child, you've never been able to please them all of the time. And so you shouldn't expect such of yourself here as a caregiver. You're not going to be able to please them all of the time. Anybody got a good life example of that? Anybody? (laughs) Number nine, I should expect my loved one to act or show gratitude for my caregiving. Now, I would suggest to you it would be good if they would. You know, it would be good if they would say thank you. And say it often. But 
people being people, I know that they don't always verbalize it. And they may think it more than they say it. Or they may feel it more than they say it. Uh, The power of the spoken word would suggest that they need to say it. And so normally if I'm talking to somebody like you about this, I'm, I'm like, let me pause and say it for them. If you haven't heard it recently, if they haven't spoken up and said, thank you for the way you care for me, would you allow me to do it in their behalf today? Because I suspect they feel it. And I suspect they are. But you know how we are sometimes. We don't say what we need to say. And you may not always hear it from those you're caring for. Matter of fact, you may hear more of the other. You, you may hear more of their discontent than their content. And so allow me to say to you in their behalf, thank you for showing them the love of Christ and caring for them in their dependency, and their growing need of you. Thoughts on that? Anybody have a loved one that was really good about saying it? Anybody? <laughs> yes, anything you can tell us? He thought it would be the other way around. I had in mind that I would be caring for you rather than you caring for me. But I'm hearing you say he's good about voicing it. Oh, it's good if they would. Let's see. I should, uh, number 10, I should never feel angry or bitter for the losses incurred because of my loved one's condition. Uh, It may be a season of loss, a season of losses, right? It could be a time of losses. And it would be an appropriate response to have a sense of maybe anger or frustration about those losses. Uh, I know I've observed caregivers who, who maybe are angry at the losses in this season of life, and then they beat up on themselves and they're guilty about feeling anger. When anger is probably, a nat- there's a righteous anger, and when things aren't the way they were intended to be, or maybe they're the way, not the way you dreamed they would be, is there a sense of frustration and anger about that at times? I think so. Uh, I think so. Um, Oh, about, yeah, (laughs) focus factor. Uh, But some caregivers will then feel guilty for feeling angry. And it just is even deeper. Like, okay, I'm not showing the love of Christ if I feel a sense of anger. Well, and what I'm trying to do for you is normalize. You're going to feel some frustration. You're going to have some moments where you feel angry simply because of life circumstance. You know, I say to my wife in my marriage sometimes, when I start voicing some frustration and Wanda maybe starts getting defensive or tries to fix it or something, uh, 
sometimes I'll say to her, Wanda, I'm not angry at you. I'm angry at life. Can I, can I be angry at life? Can I be frustrated with life and be okay with that? And it's not you. You don't take it personal. It's life. And I'm saying to you as a caregiver, you're going to feel some frustration and anger. And that's justifiable. Don't go feeling guilty because you feel a sense of anger and frustration about life circumstances. She went on to say, if I could allow, check my time here, if I could allow the care receiver, I should allow the care receiver to be in control. And she's saying, uh, that's an irrational should. That you should always allow them to dictate what happens. Matter of fact, the godly man that was taking care of his wife who had had a stroke, it was kind of interesting, I remember uh, in his story, that when he was away, she could provide for herself. Like she could fix her lunch, her sandwich for lunch, and take care of herself. But then when he was home, she would never do that. I thought that was a bit... And he always felt that that was imposed on him. She could help herself more than she was doing when he was there. And so she was uh, in control. Uh, If I were to give a theoretical concept, it would be the principle of least interest. The person with the least interest has the most power. So if when he's home, she shows no interest in preparing a sandwich for herself, guess what it does? It imposes that behavior on him, and he was just being worked. He was worn out and depressed, and rather than maybe being more assertive in, wait a minute, you can do this when I'm not here, you can help do this when I'm at home. Yeah, that's kind of tough, right? Yeah, but otherwise, you just let them be in control. She went on to say, I should always have my loved one live with me. Uh, I hope we have time to get to it, uh, uh, but the long-term care decision, the assisted living decision, is a tough decision for families as loved ones age. And, uh, and some folks will adopt this irrational should, that I should always have my loved one live with me. And that's not necessarily the case. And there's a number of things you need to consider in making that kind of decision. You with me? But some folks just hold on to that as though there are no alternatives. I should never place my loved one in a long-term care, assisted living kind of facility. And again, I hope we get there and can talk about uh, that challenging decision. Number 14, she had 15. 15, the role of caregiver should become my identity. In other words, I lose my other roles in life. Uh, My grandparenting, I lose that role in life. Or in his case, the preaching and being a referee, I lose those roles in life because I'm consumed. My identity is totally invested in my role of a caregiver. And then look at her number 15. I should be so consumed by what might happen tomorrow that I overlooked the joys of today. Isn't that neat? And that, <clears throat> that really captures who she is. Mary Lou McKissick is, uh, I will honor her before you. She lives with her. She is now living with her daughter. 
Isn't that neat? Oh, guess what? Her sister moved in as well. (laughs) So Mary Lou and her sister now live with her daughter and son-in-law. But she, she saw it as a joy to be able to care for her aging parents. Isn't that neat? Well, let me give you a few as we sprint to the finish line. Watch my clock here. Let me give you some coping mechanisms, and these will be somewhat general, and then next week we'll move into more specifically uh, children caring for aging parents. Some coping mechanism. Oh, I'm, yeah, I'm ahead of myself. Uh, let me pause a moment. Uh, give you a little simple one, two, three model of communication. Uh, you know, when our loved ones become increasingly dependent, uh, as our parents perhaps become increasingly increasingly dependent, it kind of does something to the communication, doesn't it? Communication changes. And uh, I I can't remember it well enough to tell the story, but I remember years ago Doug Manning telling a story of a, a son trying to help care for his uh, aging father, who was, you know, a proud and independent, do-it-yourself man, you know, and as he grew increasingly dependent and his son was trying to care for him, I just remember kind of the punchline of the story where the son goes to visit the father, and he, they, he says, Dad, we need to talk, and they got in the car and they went for a drive, and he says, Dad, this isn't working, is it? And he talked about how challenging the communication had become. When the roles change, your communication uh, becomes maybe increasingly difficult. You have to talk in ways that you haven't had to talk before. You have to talk about things that you haven't discussed before, right? And so uh, let me just keep it simple for a moment. There's a simple one, two, three model of communication that I like that comes in handy at times and um, for example everybody wants to be heard everybody has a story to tell matter of fact I tell people untold stories are unhealed wounds untold stories are unhealed wounds everybody has a story to tell I listen to their story everybody wants their feelings validated you might not feel that way, but I would like you to at least respect and, and appreciate my feelings, maybe validate my feelings. They're my feelings. I would hope you could maybe validate them. I hope they're legitimate. And number three, everybody wants their problem solved. Well, without going too far into a simple model of communication, I'm here to tell you we do a lot of good if we'll focus on one and two before we jump into number three. Matter of fact, in caregiving, uh, a lot of times there aren't any simple solutions. I mean, it's about coping. And number one and two become pretty huge when it comes to coping. Can, Can you allow them to tell their story and validate their feelings, even if you can't solve the problem? And vice versa for the caregiver. Are there places where they can tell their story and share their frustration of it and have their feelings validated even though we may not fix the problem? Yeah, we want to move towards solutions at some point, 
But I'm just pausing a moment to remind you, as you interact with aging loved ones and those who are growing in dependency, everybody wants to be heard. Let them tell their story. Yes, that means if you've heard it before, yes, let them tell it again and validate their feelings. Is that and they did some research of of people in like nursing homes that um, and it's called validation therapy. They would have someone looking out the window and they'd say they'd say, "There's three cows outside our building." Well, you know, there wasn't three cows and and they not, they did research, and they would try to orient the person to cognitively to reality. That would be reality therapy. You could say, no, there's, there's not three cows out on our lawn. And she would be like, yeah, sure there is. There's three cows. I see them. And they're like, no, Miss Betty, there's not three cows on the lawn. And you know what they, the research showed? Their anxiety went way up. Their symptomology went way up. They were disturbed. And someone came along and said, why don't we try validation therapy? Why don't we simply take them where they are and let them go with it? And so the, Miss Betty says, hey, there's three cows out on the lawn. And you're like, well, what kind of cows are those? Well, they're, well, what are those cows doing right now? They're grazing. Oh, okay. Are any of them spotted cows? And you just let them share their story. That's where they are in the moment. And guess what they found out happened to the emotions? Number two, anxiety went way down. They were okay. They were much more comfortable. And then in a few minutes, Miss Betty might say, Oh, I'm being silly. There aren't any cows on our lawn. You with me? Just let them tell their story, validate their feelings. You don't have to correct it, fix it. And I won't go there too far there, but no, that's not lying. <laughs> okay, and then everybody wants their problem solved. Coping mechanisms for caregivers. Let's see what I got here. Oh, me. Choose to take charge of your life. Accept the role of caregiver. See this as a season of life. See this as, hey, this is helping me be more like Jesus. That's what's happening here. Reward yourself with respite breaks. What's that say? Often. Reward yourself with respite. You need to get away and you need to do it often. Number three, <clears throat> accept offers to help and suggest specific tasks that people can do. <clears throat> I like that. Accept offers for help. There are some folks that just don't want to be obligated to anyone. I think if you help me, that means I'm going to be obligated to help you. And I know people that way. I'm kin to some people that way, okay? I know what I'm talking about here. We don't like to be obligated, so hey, no, you can't help me. And accept offers for help. And watch this. Be specific about what people can do. Make a list. Make a list. Here's what you can do that would help me. Number four, become your own advocate. Seek, accept, and at times demand help. It may mean that you need to be more assertive. Oh, it comes to me, did, did you notice that how Jesus 
when the crowds would press on him, needing healing, needing feeding, did you notice how there were times when he broke away from the crowds and he went and did what? He took care of himself. He went and spent time in prayer. He went and spent time in solitude. He broke away from all the needs of those around. The needs were still there, right? And that's what this is saying. You need to break away from it. You need to maybe be more assertive. Jesus did. No, I'm not helping you in the moment. I'm going to go take care of, I'm going to go commune with my heavenly father. Advocate, seek, accept, and at times demand, demand help. Watch out for signs of depression and anxiety. Uh, do a good bit of self-reflection. Do a good bit of self-monitoring of where you're at. How am I doing with my own emotions? Educate yourself about aging, your loved one's condition, and available resources. Uh, do some real homework. We can better manage our emotions sometimes the better we understand something. So whatever your aging loved one's uh, challenge might be, educate yourself on that. Be well informed about that and then explore what are the available uh, church and community resources to help address that. Be open to technologies and ideas that promote your loved one's independence. I mean, there's all sorts of like security systems and monitors and such as that that would help you, uh, you know, over supervise, oversee your loved one maybe from a distance that helps to maximize their independence. Trust your instincts, they'll lead you in the right direction. I think sometimes that's very true. Trust your instincts about some things. If it doesn't seem right, there's a good chance it's not right. Seek support from other caregivers. Join a support group. I personally think support groups are wonderful. Just hearing other people who can relate is so healthy. That's going through the same thing is so validating. And number 10, grieve your losses and then allow yourself to dream new dreams. I like that. Well, those are some general kinds of coping things, and I'll maybe print some of these or share them some other way with you. Next week, we're going to get into some specificity about how parents and children talk and address some of the real challenges of caregiving. I hope you'll be here. For that. Have a blessed week. Be affirmed in showing the love of Christ to those in greatest need. Thank you. Have a good week.